This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. For more than 40 years, Helix Education's enrollment growth solutions, including outsourced program management, enrollment marketing, and retention services, have helped colleges and universities successfully find, enroll, retain, teach, and graduate post-traditional learners. To learn more about how data can drive your institution's enrollment growth, visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. It is September 19th, and it has been three months since our last podcast. So much has happened. I know. I went to Cleveland. Andrew moved to North Carolina. Right. I'm not Andrew. (laughs) You're not Andrew. And so for listening, listeners wondering who just said that, um, it is Jesse O'Connell from uh, Lumina Foundation is joining us today as our first uh, guest host. um, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And a guest drink maker. Uh, Jesse, what are we drinking? So we are drinking gin Rickies, and we're drinking that for two reasons. The Ricky is actually the official cocktail of Washington, D.C. Yeah, the local bartenders guild got together some years back and decided that the drink was invented in D.C. The story, I don't know if this is apocryphal or accurate, but it's that a lobbyist named Colonel Ricky uh, was fed up with the D.C. heat, asked the bartender for something that would be like air conditioning in a glass, and he ended up with a mix of mineral water and alcohol and lime. Uh, it started as bourbon, more commonly has gin in it. And the gin we're drinking today is made in DC. It's called Green Hat. This is their spring summer gin, so it's kind of got a citrus thing. Uh, but the story there is it's named after the bootlegger that sold booze on Capitol Hill during Prohibition to federal lawmakers. Wow. So we got kind of a double DC booze thing going on. Should I be proud or ashamed that I picked out the green hat without knowing what that's what I, it was? I think that's absolutely <laughs> a point of pride. All right. So cheers. 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 It's great, cheers. by the way. On the like seven, 790 yeah. degree day. <laughs> well, and I think yes, the last yeah. time we did a podcast, it was still raining maybe. So it, it's been some time. And I mistimed the weather. This would have been mm-hmm. nicer yesterday. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah. you know, it's we still got... warm today though. It's yeah. rainy, but. It's gross. I yeah. just walked over. It's, it's gross. Not, it's, it's like full on sticky. Yeah, we do need the rain, though. My lawn needs to rain desperately. So I've killed my lawn for the second year in a row as a suburban homeowner. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so what's happened uh, since we last met? So one thing that's happened is, uh, uh, Libby, because of your uh, writing, I am now a regular consumer of uh, LaCroix sparkling water. So thank you for that. Um, (laughs) I have a new beat, too. I have a lot lot of personal news. I noticed it's stocked here at New America. Uh, (laughs) Do we have it now? We we only have, really, because we only have Adirondack upstairs. There's the LaCroix down here? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, good. The dirty secret of my LaCroix story is I actually like polar uh, lime cranberry better than Uh, any other seltzer in existence (laughs) to the point where I've now officially endorsed it on a podcast. So here we are. Sorry, LaCroix. So tell us more about your, uh, what else, uh, your new beat? What else? Yeah. So I went to the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. That was a trip. I am available to answer questions about it now that I have the perspective of some months uh, with it behind (laughs) me. And I am covering, um, I've moved into back to policy, which is great. If they ever circle back to education, I am ready and waiting to talk about it. Uh, But in the meantime, I've been doing some social policy. So we have grouped it under sort of children and family issues, but it's sort of Hillary Clinton's bucket of stuff that has now mm. sort of also become oddly under Ivanka Trump's influence, Donald Trump's bucket of stuff. So childcare, parental leave, um, some sort of caregiving aging stuff that I really mm. don't know anything about yet. And it's it's been fun and exciting. And in some ways, it sort of jibes with education. I've just been expanding younger and younger and younger <laughs> the longer I stay on this beat. So I am now like prenatal on education at well, this good. point. Well, you can always come to us here at uh, the New America Foundation. I, our, I am setting up some meetings with the rest of you right now. Yeah. As soon as you're born, we put our, our claws in you <laughs> and have opinions about how you should be educated. And some of our best work is in early education. So, and our and also our family 
Center in Social Policy work and our uh, the Better Life Lab uh, that Bridget Shelty runs. Yes, so, they are on my yeah. list. It is actually very odd to do this. I may be the only person currently writing about this for whom these issues have like no relevance. I am not looking to take any family leave or put anyone in daycare. <laughs> well, it's really interesting it. that like the yeah. people who write about this tend to be the people who have done it. So sure, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's my life. Well, that's good. Um, I didn't good. move to North Carolina, so you know. Andrew yeah. So let's wins. let's uh, <laughs> give a shout out to our our uh, founding podcaster Andrew Kelly, who is not with us for the first time. Andrew has uh, successfully made the transition to North Carolina. So we assume, based on Facebook, this chair is comfortable though. I feel yeah. like it's, I feel like there's still some Andrewness in here. Yeah. In All right. Chair. Well, if as the podcast uh, goes on, you get more belligerent and, and <laughs> argumentative, then we'll know that 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 is working. Um, hey, Andrew, if you're listening to us right now, what's up? Um, but I haven't, you know, seen any any uh, smoke clouds on the horizon from south. You know, uh, so I guess he's still kind of figuring things out down in North Carolina. Um, yeah. So the presidential campaign, uh, you know, it's it's an odd thing. You know, we've more or less we've been talking about it for most of this podcast um, because we started at the beginning of last year. And uh, is there a time in our lives when this presidential campaign was no, not going not, on? No, not in our I podcast don't lives. Remember it. Not in our podcast lives. It has been looming over this podcast since it began. Um, I did. I felt like it was interesting. So uh, I watched all of Donald Trump's acceptance speech, and there was this moment, like well after the, you know, uh, the. The only I can make a secure part and the like the German people must expand, you know, <laughs> east into the greater Ukraine part where he sort of went through this like grab bag of, of oh, and we're going to do all these things. And mm -hmm. they were like they were all transparently false. Um, but there were like 12 of them. And one of them was and all those people with student loans were totally going to help you. And then they've said nothing about it since then, I assume. Yeah, there hasn't been anything as far as I know. I've sort of been keeping an eye on this because that does seem to sort of be what I have sort of started thinking of as, as Ivanka Trump issues. And those are the ones that the campaign actually seems to be right. acting on, in part because she is a domestic policy advisor. I've been writing a lot about this. Um, but she very much is concentrated on the issues that are associated with her brand, right. um, which is like educated working women. I feel like student debt almost crosses over into that a little bit. So I would not be shocked to see it. But... I don't know, like what passes for a policy? I mean, they did give a, they had a quote unquote education week that occurred when a speech well, was given, I believe. Well, it got subsumed by yeah. Immigration Week. Immigration Which Immigration, immigration Week is actually three yes, weeks. That's right. Um, but I think there was a school choice thing that they, right. they did of some nature, but there has not been thing. anything as far as I know on yeah. student debt. I, like, I thought it was interesting mostly just because I, it just seemed like, what are 15 things that everyone will sort of pop and we'll just mm -hmm. say that we're in favor of all that? Mm -hmm. and, it, and so student loans is one of those things. Like, that's what seems significant to me. Yeah. Like, that it was like, oh, yes, got to say, we have to make something up about student loans that we don't mm -hmm. really mean, so let's do that. And it just seemed to sort of show how that's become so embedded in our culture. Well, I think education issues generally fall into that bucket of things that he addresses on the level of just incredibly trite soundbites. So he'll say, like, student loan debt, we're going to knock the hell out of it. Like, as if that is some like sort of ISIS specific plan. Or, right. or, yeah. yeah. or a Mexican immigrant. Right. And they this, have, right? they've done this. Or an thing. ex girlfriend. <laughs> right. Or, right. Um, um, they keep saying that their plan a is a couple weeks off. You know, and then we get a couple weeks off yeah. and it never materializes. So, but they, I mean, they have sort of staffed up. I mean, I know they added a staffer on the actual campaign. Right. Today it's reported they added two staffers on the transition team, um, yes. but seem to really not be talking about higher ed. It has been the school choice stuff. Yeah. And it is, I mean, a couple things I think with that it's, for one, I mean, Inside Higher Ed has done great reporting on who they've actually mm -hmm. added, which I should cite and has been good to sort of mm -hmm. try to keep up with this. It does not... 
one thing that's been really interesting to me, and this is with student debt, but with some other issues as well, as even though Andrew fled to North Carolina, it is not like there is not a right leaning perspective on some of these issues that he wants to do something about. Um, Certainly, you know, there are people in the Rubio camp who thought about this, like there are people who have been doing some thinking on this, who if he wanted to create a policy, he could tap them and ask them to do that. Uh, he did not do that very much, as far as I can tell, with childcare. He sort of barely nodded at it with parental leave. And when you look at who he's adding on on the student loan stuff, although I didn't see who he added the, to the transition team, it was it was two K twelve focused people. Yeah, it does it doesn't, one, it doesn't former seem to be Secretary of Education. It was an anti Common Core guy yeah. and someone else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I would say in the K twelve, I mean, it seems like the K twelve ed community, no matter their other beliefs, is united on being anti Trump. So it, it is interesting mm-hmm. that he's not really tapping any networks on this. I think the other question is, even if he did have a higher plan out though, do we have any confidence that it wouldn't change week to week? I mean, his tax no. plan changed three times over the course of a day and a half yeah. at the end of last week. So I don't I don't yeah. really know that we would even be able to infer much were there an existing plan to look at. Right. It is extreme. I would say having sort of tried to analyze some of Trump's policies, it is a extremely difficult to actually analyze what the policy is because they don't always appear to have been written by someone with knowledge of that. Like there were things mm-hmm. when I was looking at um, some of the other non-education stuff that I would be like, maybe I just don't know this policy area. And I would call somebody and be like, can you like explain to me what this means? And they're like, like no, that's a totally puzzling statement. We really don't know what it means. And when it's like six to seven sentences, it's really hard to figure mm-hmm. out where that's coming from. The other is there is not really an animating philosophy underlying a lot of this stuff. Like if right. Hillary Clinton's, uh, Hillary Clinton's higher ed plan is a bad example of this because it's a kitchen sink. But if you look at some of her other stuff, like her early childhood through pre-K, it's very sort of focused on equalizing like the backgrounds of kids under five. It's like, we're going to have nurse family partnerships to like teach low income families how to be better parents. We're going to have parental leave so they can have time to spend with their kids and they can hear more words and do things. And like, it sort of looks like a coherent whole. And you look like Trump's policies just sort of tend to be like, I've heard this word and people like it. And so I'm going to say it (laughs) as far as I can tell. And there has not been a lot to that, you know, beyond that, which is not a great policy making like you know this, you, you this need is, to have a philosophy right and this is one of the minor tragedies of the trump campaign obviously uh, much less significant than the rising tide of fascism um but you know the notion that there so was this is different than andrew there was, here, I would there, say. <laughs> there, there was a very interesting debate teed up with mm-hmm. jeb bush's education plan right. so very much in contrast to what we were seeing out of um you know uh bernie, uh, bernie sanders plan at the time mm-hmm. hillary clinton's plan um, and I think that would have been a really compelling debate to see unfold in the higher education space, and obviously that did not come to pass. Let's have a moment of silence for the rousing role of yeah. the state in higher education debate we're not currently having during this campaign. And, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, and I should have figured this out, but did Hillary come over to the Bernie Free College plan yes. after our last podcast? Yes, because this was pretty recent. Happened, this was after the DNC, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, that's a, that's a new thing that's happening. Ish, it's under one hundred twenty-five thousand. Right. I want to say eighty-five at outset. So we haven't talked yeah. about that here. No, her, so maybe her, we should back up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a that was. I mean, it was the major policy concession that she mm-hmm. made in order mm-hmm. to kind mm-hmm. of bring him over, right? I mean, the timing yeah. of it was in that week, like coming leading up to the convention, right? Yeah, it's odd, by the way. It feels like it's been messaged really badly. I mean, it was messaged badly before yeah. the speech. It was not signaled to the press or to anyone else as this big change. Like, it has sort of been presented at this continuity of, like, debt-free mm-hmm. well, for both. the middle class. Yeah. And yeah. it's, yeah. it's like, it's, it's it interesting. She, yeah. I think she really wanted to get the Sanders energy. And it just right. is, like, no one. What happened is everybody quit talking about higher education completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that was the last we've heard of it. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was. And so, again, like, if of all the things that, the thing that was most important in terms of, you know, whatever deal was mm-hmm. struck for him to have a 
full-throated endorsements and the politics. It was the free college thing, which again, I just feel like is just new and noteworthy and is going to turn out to be meaningful like in the long term in terms of just where the set, like the center of policy-related political energy lies. Well, particularly in the context not only of a yeah. potential um, Hillary Clinton administration, but that could also be a Bernie Sanders-led health committee, depending on how some of those dominoes yeah. fall with uh, Democratic leadership in the Senate. I mean, I think it's I think it's unfortunate. I wrote about this in the upshot a couple months ago when it first happened, but it just it it seems it is a bigger difference than I think people understand. Her plan before was sprawling and clearly a multiple coalition. We're going to have some Elizabeth Warren here and some Barack Obama there and some of myself, and we'll kind of get everyone together. But but you could go from there to I think a a kind of a set of federal policies that would be implementable. I think once you say free. And once you and I talked to them a little bit when I wrote about it and said, well, what are you talking about? Like, are you actually saying that you're just going to take tuition to zero at every public university? Because, like, do you understand how much public university tuition varies? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them are really cheap and some of them aren't. And it basically is in inverse proportion to state investment. So are you really going to bail out all the states that have basically been the worst actors in state disinvestment and penalize all the states that have been taxing their citizens to keep tuition down? And the answer was kind of, yeah. You know, like, because what else are you going to do? I mean, th that's the only thing you can do if free is your starting point. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't, I think people will figure that out really quickly and be like, what? No, we're not doing that, right? I mean, yeah, well, and I think it's interesting that it's also then combined with this whole suite of um, debt-related provisions that obviously are animating a different constituency, which is those that have completed but feel mm -hmm. like they're struggling. And I, th I think that very much stands in contrast to the people that would be helped by the kind of upfront uh, free portion of it. And I, I think it makes an unusual marriage, particularly when you look at the overall cost that that then results in. Yeah. And, but you're right, it has kind of died down since then. Really yeah, it really just... is. Like, I was excited about getting right. back more into policy, and I was like, oh, yeah. maybe this is a good excuse to write about higher ed a little bit on the side. And I'm just like waiting out here in the desert for something to happen. Yeah. Um, I do think, should Clinton win, which I guess is something that is now like less certain than it looked a couple weeks ago, yeah. um, there is going to be a priorities issue here as well. And I think that's where the sort of right. lack of energy around higher ed, for me, just as someone who enjoys in the amoral way of journalists involves enjoys covering the debates and the policy right. making is a little disappointing. Um, it, because there is going to be a point where you, even if there is a sort of favorable legislative environment, you've got to make a choice on what you're going to pursue. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Sanders energy doesn't seem to have caught on all mm -hmm. that much makes me think I, you know, six months ago would have said, absolutely. I think higher ed is like one of the top three to five, maybe not the top thing, mm -hmm. but one of the top three to five things. It's the big promise. It's the thing mm -hmm. that needs to get mm -hmm. done. It doesn't feel like that so much has been the focus. But really. I feel like all energy has just been canceled out by the enormous, like, you know, pulsing star of negativity coming from sort of <laughs> the Trump campaign yeah. and like Trump himself and kind of just this sort of this big existential question about, oh, good God, could this actually happen? You know, so yeah. so it's just it's just changed the way everyone thinks and talks about everything. I mean, I, I feel like I should point out that is absolutely right. But yeah. 2016 also just has all this other attendant weirdness. Like there were numbers out last week about the number of millennials that are, you know, expressing their support mm -hmm. for both third party candidates, which I just think is its whole other ball right. of weird. And mm -hmm. I just think taken in, in yeah. total, it just kind of adds up to this very odd situation. Yeah, there is, there's like this contingent of Bernie Rose on my Twitter feed who have all switched over to Dr. Jill Stein <laughs> and are now, are now like tweeting about her with the same belligerence and like kind of Kevin, sense of moral outrage. Twitter feed. Well, you I don't have to, to follow people. I guess I have to change it or something I don't know. yeah yeah you do i need to do a, tw I need to do a twitter purge like you did a year ago that was yeah. a horrible idea i oh, don't recommend it? that i'm okay. still recovering i'm still recovering from my twitter purge all right 
So that was, I think, actually like a primary or debate night burst of nihilism of like, well, I'm doing different <laughs> stuff and nothing matters, and I'm just going to start over from scratch. Don't purge your Twitter feeds, guys. Okay. All right. Um, so, but if Haley wins the election, um, then presumably. Uh, where we can go back to sort of normal and then the things that like would have been issues were always issues and they'll be issues again because they'll start planning for a, a, a transition in an administration. Yeah, it seems weird. Well, and to, well, I mean, yeah. one of those issues is fairly in the news at the moment, which is this whole issue around um, what's going on with um, ITT and, and the broader issue around acc- accreditation. Yeah, no, that's been so that's been interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. The Department of Education killed ITT Tech a couple weeks ago. Um, I was saying to someone in the office, you know, I think one thing that this has taught me uh, that I sort of knew but didn't really know is that there's a kill switch in the Department of Education <laughs> on 400 Maryland Avenue, I guess in Ted Mitchell's office. Um, he has the red uh, button. Uh, well, he's, he's been, he's been pressing it. Yeah. He's been pressing it. I think someone it's with a briefcase. Like, I feel like, like a handcuff to the wrist. You know? In my mind, it's a stainless steel toggle switch. Oh, you just like toggle it back. Okay. You know, you go, and then it's just some uh, uh, college somewhere goes out of business. Yeah, time. I always thought it was a red button because yeah. I thought that was like if you cut off Title IX funds, it's definitely a red button. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're different rooms. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. So yeah, there is a kill switch there. I mean, they killed ITT very purposely. They knew it would, I mean, it, it's so it's an interesting thing. You know, so they killed Corinthian a year ago, and there was this debate about whether they knew it would happen, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and they did it by basically putting more financial requirements on the flow of federal Title IV money mm-hmm. um, to these institutions and requiring an ITT's case saying, well, if you're going to stay in the program, you need to put up a bigger letter of credit. And of course, this just creates a financial spiral, right? Mm-hmm. Because letters of credit are expensive, which means you have less money, which means you have less credit, which means they're more expensive. And it just, I mean, the numbers just go from kind of adding up to not adding up. I mean, Corinthian went out of business within 24 hours. ITT went out of business within a week. Um, the department... With Corinthians sort of said, well... Corinthians taught out for a while, though, right? Yeah. The, I, I, well, but I that was like with the department. So this time the department said you can't enroll any new students. Right. So mm-hmm. a year. So this mm-hmm. has been interesting. So so with Corinthian, which was really the first time this had ever happened, mm-hmm. they didn't want to shut it down. I mean, I talked to people. And they're like, mm-hmm. we did not want to put 50,000 students or whatever it was out in the street the next day. And so the only way to do that was to um, keep it open so someone could buy it. And mm-hmm. the only way to do that was to keep the money flowing because no one's going to buy a college right. that's right. not enrolling more students. Um, but that was crazy because what it meant was they kept open some really bad programs and the whole uh, recruiting mechanism that went with them that everyone mm-hmm. knew was bad and they somehow mm-hmm. were going to keep kind of recruit. So they didn't do that this time. Mm-hmm. They basically said, you can't enroll new students and have a bigger letter of credit. And that was that. And I think, you know, what people have said to me is um, this is some something in so, to some extent the difference between Arnie Duncan and John King and their attitude toward oh, so for-profit yeah. colleges that, that Duncan – as a matter of temperament or as a matter of policy was just not, his mindset was not really hard-edged and punitive and he wanted to kind of find a solution and 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 to some extent probably the kind of, fo- the continuing fallout from Corinthian in terms of the, you know, the borrowers and the lawsuits and defense to repayment and all those things kind of just led them to say, let's, let's do it this time. Yeah, you know, the immediate fallout from this, um, Politico had an interesting piece this morning about kind of the scramble that has now gone on for these 40-odd thousand students. Right. And, you know, there's uh, some of the other for-profit chains are upping their outreach. Uh, right. The department is sure. pushing very hard for community colleges to absorb many of these students. Uh, and it's just, you know, there's a lot of difficulty around uh, if you claim the defense for payment, you lose the credit that you earned and you're kind of back to square one. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know there's a whole other bucket of issues related to veterans funds and how, you know, I don't know really the process for making those students yeah. whole. So um, kind of the, the waves from this are rippling out. And it was, it was a good piece this morning, actually, that covered a lot of that. 
Yeah, this is sort of one thing I am was looking forward to talking over with you guys is I'm sort of imagining us in a time capsule or a time machine back to 2010 or around when the Harkin Report came out. And if you would send then, you take the top seven for-profit college chains. I got this wrong in a tweet first thing in the morning, and I'm for sure going to get it wrong on an open mic after gin. But it's something like <laughs> two are totally out of business, which is Carnthane and ITP. Yeah. The others have almost universally had to sell campuses, had to close campuses, yeah. have seen their enrollment drop like 50 to 60%. I don't see that not being just a tremendous victory, kind of maybe above and beyond what they imagined when they sat down to start the gainful employment process. On the other hand, G was a mess. And like, yeah. they had yeah. to do it twice. And I, I'm just really curious, like how much the Obama administration gets credit for this? And is this like... Well, we're, in the, we're in the credit like, granting season, and I've, I've yeah. like I've talked to like all the reporters are writing their wrap ups now. Yeah, so I've yeah, been interviewed yeah. for a couple of these, and and you know I've said consistently, look, they started this on literally on day one. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Bob Shireman, uh, the great enemy of uh, uh, the for profit higher education. I cannot. I've been too busy to do this, but like <laughs> yeah. when there's a lull, probably sometime between November and January, <laughs> I will write my mistake, and I am so excited to get Bob Shireman on the phone. Good. Um, the, uh, I mean, he started right away, mm-hmm. you know, you know, on this, knew what he was doing, um, you know, understood there was a problem. They kind of started this whole regulatory process. They put the rules out there. They got sued. They lost. They came back. They re-regulated. They fought in Congress. I mean, they've, in there, you mm-hmm. know, so it is day one to day last. Um, and you're right. Even though the regulation process was messy and they were, particularly when it was finalized, they were critiqued for watering them down. A lot of progressives mm-hmm. were disappointed. They said that they were too, they were too lax. They were thrown um, out. They had to start right. over. It's hard to kind of look at this sector and the number of students enrolled. Like, and if if your perspective is, um, you know, the the for profit sector is a huge source of kind of fraud and woe mm-hmm. and needed to be brought in and and brought to check. That as you said, Libby, that it's it's it does seem like a victory from that perspective. And 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 since I kind of see it that way, I see it that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm I know that numbers on a lot of the stuff are lagging indicator, yeah. which is one reason I've mm-hmm. uh, held off a little bit on writing this. But I'm curious about the share of students en- enrolled in for profits mm-hmm. and also the share of loans and defaults that they're receiving, since that was really yeah. always the number that was was what people were concerned about. Well, it's defaults and it's also repayment. I know yes. um, yeah. there was some updated uh, scorecard data last mm-hmm. week, and one right. of the things that came out of that was um, actually Kevin out of your shop, New America, took a look and yeah. looked at the number of institutions that were not meeting that thirty uh, percent repayment threshold. That had been suggested as a as a new measurement, right. and um, it was like 1,100 it's campuses at 580 institutions yeah. were not reaching that 30 percent threshold. Yeah. That's not right. Um, yeah. But I mean that, and so I, I will I will channel the Andrew chair here for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are we have been spending some time here talking about tax status. I mean, generally mm-hmm. though, we should it's student outcomes regardless of right. what your institution's tax status is. I think there needs to be more of a focus on what these outcomes are, and, and unfortunately, I think the accreditation process. Focuses on exactly that, which is the process, and not actually the outcomes that are being generated by some of these institutions. And it should be noted for those who remember our last podcast, where we talked a while about the process of essentially killing ACICS, which was the accredit, which was the accreditor of both. Oh man, Grindia yeah, and that's NITT. somewhere in this too. That's yeah. that's somewhere um, on the scoreboard. We do need to pause. I mean, they they, yeah. they did give us the best higher ed story of the last several years, which was the Potemkin School out in California. Which they just re- yeah. they, they, yeah. they let them off the hook. Did you see that? Campus. Like a couple weeks ago, they they. I, ACICS let them off. They're like, you're fine. They gave them like a letter of warning. Did this just happen like not that long yeah, ago? That's, that's nuts. I, 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 that's I just thought that nuts. is, yeah, I was saying, yeah. I remember I just saw them in the headlines and did not I follow through. I think they were that, like, F why. it. You know, you're going to kill us anyway. Well, and that was, that was a unique scam yeah. too. That was like a visa scam. It, was. it wasn't even yeah. a credential scam. It was scam. a visa mail, yeah. Yeah. not yeah. a Title IV mail. Right, yeah. 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 yeah, which is a different kind of fraud. Right. Um, uh, um, 
Right. So, so I mean, I, I do think, so going forward will be interesting for a couple of reasons. One, when Corinthian went down a year ago, I remember a bunch of people who sort of pay attention to this stuff saying, ITT is next. It's going to take some time. They're definitely the second worst. They look really bad. Um, I've asked all those people, is there a third one? And no one has named a third one. They've said, there's a couple of them. They're like, not as good. So it doesn't seem like there's a third shoe dropping right away. And then there is the question of, yeah, if you look at the numbers, there are a lot of non-for-profit schools that have numbers that, that don't seem to be as kind of aggressively awful. I mean, my colleague Steve Bird did a great blog post where he just took the, took a couple of days and just read through all of the complaints, all of the lawsuits, the attorney general lawsuits, mm-hmm. the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Board stuff, and just laid them out and said, just in, you know, in case you were wondering why it came to right. this, yeah. let me just explain to you all the allegations. And it is amazing. I mean, just, I mean, amazing in a really depressing, and I can't believe it, <laughs> right. it got yeah. this bad this long kind of way. One thing I think that's hard to sort of explain to people who don't know the sector as well is the difference between, like, ordinary bad and, like, extraordinary bad that right. we sort of right. see here. I yeah. wrote about yeah. Laureate. Um, my one higher ed piece I've done in the yeah. past, like, two months was about Laureate and Bill Clinton. Mm. And as part of that, I was sort of, I had sort of, been aware of them, but I didn't. I didn't realize how much I didn't know about them, and mm. it is extremely difficult to try to get your mind around like a huge global corporation in right. like two to three days. Um, but because the U.S. campuses were what there was data available for, that was what I sort of went through. And I did find myself. I had this weird moment when I was writing this, where I was like, if I was writing this under any other frame, would I say that like this is probably okay? Because they were like, well, mm. you know, like fifty percent graduation rates, and sort of I came away from this being like, eh, like this isn't great. Like, is this something mm. that? You may be given your other political priors want to involve yourself with, like, probably not. But, like, this doesn't appear to be a scam. Um, And I did have this moment where I was like, I feel like I'm going too easy on them. But people don't really understand that, like, yeah, you can have, like, a repayment rate of, like, 45% and a dropout rate of 55%. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, that's American higher ed. And that what a lot of these things were doing, a lot of these other for-profits were doing is, like, so far over that threshold. So uh, how skeezed out should we be by the eighteen million dollars that Bill Clinton took from Laureate? Like, are we? I like, mean, I don't think Laureate got or, very much for it. I don't know. I yeah. mean, it's 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 like the classic stupid Clinton scandal. It's like, why did you do this? Like, when he started doing for, this for eighteen million dollars? Yeah, 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 like exactly. the Harkin Report was on the horizon. Like, it was just you yeah. know, like it was very foreseeable. This is like not a great political right. entity to associate yourself with. You know, it's sort of related to this. He had a great quote over the weekend uh, about sort of the Clinton Foundation stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, he basically Bill? said, along the, yeah, and he said along the lines of, um, yes, people tried to buy influence, but they weren't <laughs> successful. And it was the quote was something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's very much in the same vein. Yeah. I mean, they've yeah. expanded globally a lot. Like, did it definitely help to have Bill Clinton on your side when you were doing this? Yes. Yeah. But I think one of the things about their global reach is it's really difficult to see mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. they're a good actor. Right. Um, like, in the U.S., they seem fine. Like, ideologically it is probably a bad idea as a democrat to take 18 million dollars from a for-profit college right mm-hmm. now period but like if you're going to take it from one like i guess you know go ahead right. but it's like when you have like 27 campuses in saudi or 18 campuses in saudi arabia like 48 sure. campuses right. in brazil it just becomes extremely difficult to like see if there's any kind of pattern of any kind of malfeasance or if they actually <laughs> are like doing what they say they do which is partnering with schools and helping mm-hmm. them become more efficient and doing this like entering this interesting market of fast developing countries whose higher education systems are not developing fast enough to keep up with the the nation itself mm-hmm. which is also like the role they play in the US for a while as well. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like overseas higher education unregulated 
hard to see red flag has to be on some level like I'm not yeah I don't like, read that and I'm not like I'm sure it's fine I'm yeah not sure. I don't I'm either not sure it's, it's like fine. no big scandals in that many countries yeah. I guess yeah. probably a better sign than not but right. like that it's interesting like you're either very good or very clever to be able to not run afoul of that many different sets of regulations mm-hmm. in countries with such like massively divergent higher ed systems right. with the same business model I don't know now, there, there's kind of like a larger argument that I've heard made which is that essentially for-profit higher education has to go bad eventually because of the way that the essentially because of the uh, the subsidies and the incentives, and mm-hmm. so even if you're this is sort of the the maximalist anti Clinton ar- argument, mm-hmm. which is, so the Clinton is sort of, is like well I wasn't on the board of Corinthian I wasn't mm-hmm. on the board of ITT mm-hmm. look at the numbers this is not one of the bad ones mm-hmm. they were kind of expanding why are you giving me a hard time and the counter to that is. Uh, uh, the way you make money in higher education is actually to invest in quality right up to the point that you can sell out to, to private investment firms. And then what they do is they take the value of that brand and they, they you know, ratchet up the marketing dial, you know, ratchet up everything, ratchet back the quality, make their money for 10 years, and then a, whole, a lot of students kind of get ripped off. But, you know, I, I think that that line of reasoning, though, is presuming the access to Title IV. Um, right. I think, yeah. I, I want to give credit, I actually think I've heard Ben Miller make this argument, which is, you know, prior to much of that sector getting into the mm-hmm. Title IV game, um, a lot of the institutions, you know, focused on career education mm-hmm. and whatnot were not intrinsically bad. In fact, many of them right. were quite good and did a very good job of what they were doing and, and served a really important role in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know this ultimately leads to a weird place regarding like the Bennett hypothesis. But, you know, it, it does seem that the access to Zettel 4 is what took that sector and in a way kind of um, supercharged it and sent it down a path that it hadn't really been going down before. Right. Yeah. And I think vis-a-vis the, the most compelling research for the Bennett hypothesis is on for-profit colleges. They have not found, they have found a much stronger link there between subsidies and price than they have uh, in either of public or private sector. Yeah. Private yeah, nonprofit I mean, sector. You just see people who just price right up to the low limit. Mm-hmm. I mean, low limits go by $1,000. Price goes up by $1,000. Um, okay. So uh, it will be a challenge for whoever the next president is to um, uh, uh, figure out what to do about all that. Um, we had some recent news uh, around the FAFSA. Um, the FAFSA calendar has changed. FAFSA. What's that? FAFSA. FAFSA. You're doing, I, I, no, no, you're doing it, it, wrong. It, it, make, it makes me so happy that you police that. What I, I, I say? was, you know. You have the S and the F flipped. I'm sorry. Did I say it's FAFSA? Like... No. FAFSA. FAFSA. Yes. Free application for federal students. Yeah, you did it the other way around. I said FAFSA. Yes. yes. Okay. okay. This, I'm, I, I'm glad that Libby, Libby shares this pet peeve of mine. Really it's it's know, like nails on a chalkboard. Oh, I didn't oh, yeah, know it was yeah. paying until just now. <laughs> now this is see. Now this no, no, is no. just going to bother me all the time. Well, once you start thinking about it, though, you're you're going to just you know get what happened twisted. to me on that? Just like like a year ago, the use of the word comprise. Okay. Oh, so I that's a bad my, one. I turned Try and my, turn it off. I turned my book in, and okay. they sent sent when I wrote my book, the end of college. Uh, creating the future of learning in the uni- University of Everywhere on sale in paperback right now um, from Riverhead Books. Uh, I was in Barnes & Noble yesterday. They had three copies. I wasn't sure if that was good or bad. That seems good. They're yeah, stocking it. That's a good I mean, sign. So yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, in paperback. Um, so I got the edit back from my publisher and I had used the word comprised wrong like 17 times because I had written comprised of <laughs> 17 times. And so I looked it up and I realized how you're supposed to use the word comprised. You're supposed to say composed of and then things comprise something. And now it, people use it wrong all the time and it always makes me mad now. And I kind of wish I was still ignorant. It just yeah. makes my life a little, it just makes me a little more irritable. Yeah. So now you guys have created a new thing. I can't well, say yeah. FAFSA anymore. That, that, not you like sure that. can't. Yeah. Okay. I'm amazed you made yeah. it this far without somebody yelling right. at you about that. I'm sorry, I'm the, the designated pedant. 
it, it is a surprisingly common uh, verbal tick in the industry. Did I didn't yeah. do that? Okay, so they changed the FAFSA um, <laughs> timelines. What did they do? Correct. Right. Yeah. What? Yeah. What did they okay, do? Okay. So the, the big change that drove all this was, um, and it's actually it's been since last fall that this actually was announced. It's taken until now mm-hmm. to kick in. Was they switched the base income year that you use to report information on the FAFSA? So previously, Just prior prior year. That's right. Oh yeah, we're using this this incredibly evocative no, term. No. I mean, it's like that is yeah. like a marketer's dream. Prior prior, prior, prior year. year. Oh yeah, it's just people are rushing to to be motivated by that. But previously, you would fill your FAFSA out with income from the year before the school year that you were going to attend. Mm. So for the seventeen eighteen school year, you'd use two thousand sixteen income. We've now moved back one further year. Um, that I think. On the surface, to someone that's not familiar with this, sounds like one of those weird bureaucratic, like, mm-hmm. why are we shuffling deck chairs? But it actually has profound implication, which is um, previously when the FAFSA became available shortly after January 1st and asked for that one year prior income, hardly anyone had their taxes done. Um, right. So when you got into February and March and eight application deadlines started coming up, still very many people hadn't done their taxes. And you had a situation where people would fill the FAFSA out using estimated information and potentially get an erroneous award. They would then have to go in and update it. And it just it created a lot of the unpredictability. That, so do you pay that, it back if you do that? Um, it, 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 it gets so you can't get an official aid award until you actually finally do provide oh, okay. it. You know, right. So for many families, it just meant this, this sort of mm-hmm. ongoing cycle of updating information and waiting for updated award letters from various schools, which uh, obviously impacted the college decision-making process. So... Moving back an additional year, uh, on the sort of the 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 top level benefit is it aligns the financial aid process with the admissions process much better. Um, now that people are able to fill the FAFSA out starting on October first, they should be getting aid eligibility information around the same time that they're also getting admissions decisions. This gotcha. obviously assumes the subset of people that are applying to mm-hmm. multiple schools. Um, the much more powerful impact um, and the one that doesn't get talked about as much, but really is the whole point for doing this. Um, and I should I should mention, um, Sudanarski had a really great piece in the New York Times over the weekend about exactly this, which is it lets more families use what's called the IRS data retrieval tool. So since 2009, um, there has been this automated process where when you go to fill out the FAFSA, you are essentially taken to a second session at the IRS website and you click a button that says, I want you to pull this particular private information into my FAFSA form and it automatically fills it out for you. This is important because it's faster. It's important because it eliminates errors. Um, and it also then eliminates some of the administrative processes that happen on college campuses with financial aid officers in terms of verification. So it just makes the whole system work better. Um, and this has been the real driving force behind mm-hmm. um, prior prior year, which I, I know many people are trying to uh, sort of rebrand as early aid or early FAFSA, which, Please, which makes more re- sense. Let's rebrand it as literally yes. anything else, literally anything <laughs> other than prior prior year. Um, so these these are all good changes. Now it, it has created this cottage industry this year of October first. Things are changing. Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. media attention around it, and there are definitely some unintended consequences that we need to be aware of. Um, the main one of which is shifts in kind of um, what's referred to as enrollment management, which is mm-hmm. basically trying to anticipate the people that you admit, uh, are they going to enroll or not? Um, so the worry is that some schools will commensurate move up their aid deadlines, um, which obviously will have um, a worse impact on um, low-income students and families that are not as familiar with the process and are also dependent on meeting and those deadlines. And they'll do deadlines. that because yeah. it's in their best interest to do that? Why will they do that? Um, 
as a non-expert on enrollment management, sure. I'm not totally sure on the ins and outs of it, but I do know that there there's value in sort of as soon as possible having information about what students are going to come to your school. Okay. So if you move your aid deadlines up um, and try to drive those additional applications earlier, that might help your school, but it, it hurts the system. You so know, you, we want. So they're asking for. I mean, this is a need aware thing too. Yes, a need by totally, need aware thing. Right. So like, because you want to minimize the discount rate, which I always define wrong, but it's basically the share of. The share of students who aren't paying the full price or the share of price that the average student pays, mm-hmm. and I can never remember which is yeah. which. But like you want to, you need to know, one. you need to know not only who's applying, but whether yeah. they need aid, unless well, you are like the top twenty schools. In that's the right. And the related unintended consequences: there are a lot of aid programs that come from fixed pools of dollars. Many mm-hmm. state grant programs have a fixed amount of dollars. Many right. institutional grant programs have a fixed amount of dollars. So. Um, if you don't hit that deadline or are among the earlier people to apply after that deadline, you may end up not getting aid. So the worry is that we move the deadline up to October 1st and then schools move and states move their deadlines up and we haven't really improved the process other than that automating factor. So, um, school, so that's kind of what people are keeping an eye on right now. Schools, it's in their interest to have as much information as soon as possible and now they can have information faster so they're going to ask for it faster? That's my understanding. Okay. Yes. That sounds okay. right. Right. Um, I know uh, NCAN has some, done some really good Because in October, yeah. everyone's filed their taxes for that year. Long since done that. So it's they can say, go get your, go get your IRS data right now and tell us what number you're using. Exactly. Because by, yeah. uh, by October, most right. people have filed their taxes here. So that Which is, I mean, available. not irrational, right? I mean, the no. president of Temple just lost his job because they screwed up enrollment management and yeah. gave out too much financial yeah. aid. That was and, a wild story. And so, like, wait, first, the, the vice president for finance... Lost. The president fired the vice president for finance for getting the enrollment management wrong and giving too many students financial aid, and then the board of trustees fired the president. I think that's right. For screwing it up or for firing the vice president of finance. That was what was a little confusing to me. I think it was... A bunch of people got fired. Enrollment management is such a, like... It is definitely the thing that people, including me, understand the least that is, like, the most interesting. Like, the thing, like, the dark arts of... Right. College admissions are so centered around enrollment management in a way most people don't understand, but it is also even in the like policy sphere of people who know exactly what happens at a financial aid office, I feel like have almost no idea how enrollment right. management works. Yeah, I'd, I'd count me among them. Yeah, yeah. like I mean, I, I think I could, I can talk to somebody who's worked in financial aid all day about their job. If you work in enrollment, I'm like, tell me all of your secrets. I mean, we know how it essentially works though, right? I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just about making, like you send, you admit a whole bunch of students and you don't know how many are going to say yes because mm-hmm. if they say yes, you can't then turn around and say no to them. Right. And you also make some financial commitments, not knowing how many people are going to say yes to those, which again is a risk because you can't say no once you've made the offer. And so enrollment management is just about playing the odds. And sometimes the uh, if you're smart about it, the mm-hmm. odds usually work out, but they just don't always. That's right. I, I do think I should jump in though and point out that debate though is again centered on that relatively small set of subset of yeah. people that are looking at multiple schools sure. and are comparing multiple yeah. offers. And for the vast majority of students in higher education, it's really right. one or two schools that they're looking at, largely predicated on geography yeah. based what's the school closest to where they live. So we shouldn't and worry pre- too much about the temples because it's just good <laughs> yeah. for everybody else. I, you know, I, I think this is a classic case of uh, sort of what is good for the readership of the New York Times is not necessarily good for the broader system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, prior prior year, uh, Robert Kelchin initially ran the numbers on this, and I, I believe Sudanarski recently redid it. Um, but for 70% of students, there's no change whatsoever if you move from a base year of one back to a base year mm-hmm. of two back. Um, and I think, and, and then even it's like an additional 11%, the change is nominal. Mm-hmm. It's like less than $500. Um, so in terms of like 
continuing to have a program that's well targeted and is going to the students that that we want it to go to you know this is a relatively no-brainer can you change. appeal yeah. if like a hurricane knocked down your house after the prior prior year? yes the, none of this two years ago none of this precludes. two years ago right. yeah i mean i do feel like if this judgment. were like 2010 yeah. 2011 we would be having a different conversation about how much people's financial situation well changed so, from prior yeah. year to prior so year. i yeah. was working in a yeah. financial aid office in yeah. 2010 2011 um and the professional judgment process absolutely still plays a role which is people mm -hmm. come to you and you say the income that you're using does not remotely reflect like my current situation. I want to document for you what I'm actually making right, right now because I got laid off. Um, and that process is still in place. I should add though that, you know, that is a process that is best engaged with people that have resources, Re yeah. the time resource, the mm -hmm. knowledge resource that you have the ability to do professional judgment, or that you're going to a school that has an aid office that is well resourced enough to do professional judgments. Not all schools are able to do that. So yes, it is still kind of this safety valve in the system, but you know, it's another example of how the system works differently based on who you are and where you're going to school. And that's ultimately something that I think we should all work to mitigate. Do you think that this will take some of the momentum around this idea that as we, if we move towards a higher education act reauthorization next year, there's been this call for FAFSA simplification and aid on a postcard and all that. Like since we've done this, is this going to be, or do, is it less, is, is that less needed? Is that less likely? I think this was an important first step, but there, there is still a bigger goal. And I'm glad you mentioned aid on a postcard because I think that's a great example. First of all, Postcards. Um, I, I right. love the idea that we're yeah. physically yeah. mailing right. postcards. Right, that is how we're like, doing it. What, what yeah. is this? Yeah. Aid on a thing that the students going to college have never seen in their lives <laughs> right. and they don't know what right. it is. Write your social security number on this and mail it back to us. <laughs> it sounds like a great system. Yeah. Um, no, so the aid on the postcard proposal was basically saying if you tell us your AGI and your family size, we'll be able to right. determine your aid based on that. I think that is a laudable goal, trying to be right. as simple as possible. And some really smart researchers looked at the correlation between just AGI and family size. Mm -hmm. And it, it really does account for most of the ability to do needs analysis. So I'm not trying to discount it on that grounds. Um, I do think, though, that there is value in nuance. And our aid program currently is very well targeted. That's not to say that there isn't um, fraud and waste in the system in terms of the types of schools and their outcomes that mm -hmm. students end up using their Pell Grant at. But generally speaking, the people that receive Pell are the people that we want to receive Pell Grants. And if we overly simplify, for instance, a lot of the simple, so aid on a postcard, even President Obama's proposal last year to remove 30 of the most burdensome questions from the FAFSA, largely it's getting rid of asset questions, which basically means that you are making wealthier families, families with assets, um, more eligible for financial right. aid. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a risk in moving in that direction. There's also a risk in oversimplifying in that institutions want that nuance and how they award their aid. So and they can take, still ask for it, right? Exactly. So if we remove a lot of those questions from the federal form, we increase the risk that states or institutions are going to create their own form or more of them will lean on the CSS profile, which is the most common right. additional use. Created by the College Board. That is correct. Um, so... You know, there, there is kind of this balancing act with simplification. I think what we could look for in reauthorization, though, is there is a real potential through better leverage of the IRS data retrieval tool to kind of create this winnowing process. So right now, we make everyone do the FAFSA. And honestly, we make everyone redo it year after year. And generally speaking, when it comes to federal benefit programs, we make poor families repeatedly demonstrate that they're poor, which really just does not seem like the most effective way to go about things. So... Um, several proposals out there, a big one from NASA, which full disclosure I used to work at, uh, but also the Gates Foundation, they basically say we need to do a better upfront identification of who should be fully eligible for a Pell Grant. NASA suggests um, if you are SNAP eligible, that's mm -hmm. the only, you basically ask yes or no, are you eligible for SNAP benefits? Mm -hmm. If you answer yes, you're basically done, you get a full Pell Grant. 
Um, Gates's proposal was to start by asking, do you file tax schedules? And if you don't file tax schedules, you're basically done at that point. Um, so that way you're, you're breaking off huge chunks of the aid application process mm -hmm. and making these people's process very, very easy. Um, and then you can continue to winnow. And then, so in the it's NASA, like yeah, skip right. logic on steroids? Yeah, very okay. similar. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, and the other thing that we could do is expand the uh, data points that the data retrieval tool pulls in. Currently, it's kind of it's a very you know limited uh, amount of information that's pulled in, and we could sort of ask for additional questions to be pulled in. Um, it's just the process to get the data retrieval tool stood up in the first place was very arduous. My mm -hmm. understanding is that the IRS didn't really want to play ball for a long time. So to go back to that well to add additional information could be a tough thing. But ultimately, I, I think, you know, sort of the pie in the sky goal would be not having a FAFSA at all, basically just applying for financial aid through your tax return, just mm -hmm. sort of this automatic assessment of what you're eligible for. And those are the kind of efforts that I would really be interested in seeing us pursue through the reauthorization process. Mm -hmm. It could be like aid on Snapchat oh, there you go. for the kids yeah, these yeah, days, exactly. right? And then it disappears, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. So yeah. isn't that better? That's right. You send a selfie, you get your aid yeah. package, Anything. something along those lines. Yeah. Right. Got so, yeah. I'm hip, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of staring at Libby as the as most. The, the, uh, the youngest millennial yeah. in the room. Yeah. Well, I'm not a millennial. Oh, God. Was this Jesse? Am I the only uh, millennial? Self-identified millennial? Uh, no, I, I think my uh, my birth year puts me into that generation. I, I do not self-identify. Okay. Yeah. So Andrew yeah. was most in that. Andrew was born in, I think, 1981. 1981. And I'm, he, I'm a year behind that. He yeah. resisted okay. the identification. Yeah, I'm yeah, I think I'm channeling the chair well. Okay. Yeah. So I think 1984 is the technical start, which I am after. Okay, it's 84. All right. So... Um, it's easier to just be unambiguously a Gen X person. Every every <laughs> every generational definition of Gen X, uh, 1970 is exactly in the middle of. So I don't have I have no and, and I think the way Gen Xers think, and so it's just who I am. Our fellow today was and explaining to me all the ways in which I'm an old millennial. Old millennial. Oh, uh, oh okay. There's, because there's I, I was eligible to vote in 2008. I was actually barely almost eligible to vote in 2004. Um, but yes, I am. I, the kids these days, I have very little in common with. I'm pretty sure at the ripe old age of seven years older than today's yeah. college. I know. I've made this joke before, but there's a fortune out there for whoever names the next generation and then sells a lot of like flim flam consulting to colleges <laughs> about how to market. Oh my god, them. it's the same yeah. people who've always been, it's the same people who've always been doing it. I've actually written about this, and yeah. like the best thing about this industry is like even more than like most forecasting and punditry, mm. it apparently does not matter at all. It's completely not empirical. If you are right. There is an amazing um, yeah. well, book from like 1999 about millennials and yeah. everything in it is wrong. Right. Wasn't there but one thing that was right? Didn't you? We talked yeah, about this. Yeah, I think I've talked about yeah. this before because I, yeah. I wrote about it. It's like my, yeah. one of my favorite things I've written. But like all, like if you squint at it, like there will be a large news event that will shape their understanding <laughs> of the world was a right. correct prediction. That's but right. I feel like I can say <laughs> that right. Well, but there, there are right some now. monikers and you, I mean, the, the White House has a big initiative around called "We're Next," right? And they're they're calling that generation something. In the I, I can't I can't think of it right now. No, they exist. Yeah. They're born. They're out there. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. The, the, if you don't find a new name, the generation just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I mean, the baby boomers are like thirty years. Ago. I don't think millennials caught on though until like pretty recently. Like yeah. I think it was Generation Y for a long time. It's it at least five. No, I'd say five years, maybe ten. It's, it's been at least five. Know, no, yeah. I mean, it's been since I graduated right. college. Is Gen I, Y still a thing? Did no. that? Like, it still so. applies, but, okay. like, I think that is also right. very much specifically the older millennium okay. subset. Okay. Like, okay. the kids of baby boomers or Gen Y. I don't know who the back end of millennials okay. are. Okay. Well, we need to find a new thing for 
people like me to make fun of now, you know. So we have all these conversations about, you know, once the millennials leave the room sort of complaining about their their uh, self-regard and their neediness and all that stuff. So there's, there's um, literally a fall TV show that's just Joel McHale doing this. It's on, it's, it's, it's on CBS. Like that, okay. That's the entire plot. Joel McHale making Sign fun me up. of millennials. Sign What is the name of that show? Yeah. I'm totally watching that. Also, recently in the news, there was a, a very familiar story of a librarian who uh, uh, unexpectedly left $4 million to the University of New Hampshire. Is that right? I think that's right. And so, so it was really interesting because th- this is a, like a, an evergreen story. This happens all the time. Like someone is very frugal and no one really knows about them. And they, you know, if, it just turns out if you, if you work for your entire life and you never spend any money on anything and you invest it, you can like earn some interest. He left it all the University of New Hampshire, and they used like $100,000 for the library and a million on a new scoreboard for whatever football team they have at the University of New Hampshire. And, you know, the story just got written like the story is already written. And then people read it. And I'm going to say I did this. I tweeted about it right away. I said... I wish this guy had taken himself out to dinner and Absolutely. not yeah. left a million dollars for the scoreboard. And now it's a whole controversy. <laughs> so I just thought it was interesting that like people did, it didn't occur to anyone that anyone would be mad about it. And now it's kind of out there. Yeah, this is an amazing story. Um, I don't have a lot to say besides it's an amazing story and I'm glad we're talking about it. But like, I guess there is, if you want to take this in like a serious direction, a, an interesting question about like, this is why people earmark gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that fundraising people hate that because you get people who like will only create a scholarship for the people, you know, with green hair from their hometown who major in English and not in engineering. And like right. that kind of restricted gift is, but like, this is why restricted gifts happen. Like I'm, you sure, know, yeah. like I'm not giving anyone a million dollars that I don't have now. Like what if, you know, what it's if true, yeah, and, it? and coming out of a financial aid office, you, you run into interesting instances of restricted gifts, which is people will give money to a university to spin off a scholarship for very specific reasons. So yes. we often, which we would have to find someone that was a viola player from mm-hmm. an inner city Chicago school that comes from a family with Polish ancestry and give them a scholarship. So it, it does have these interesting mm-hmm. downstream effects. But I, I do feel like this is kind of setting up the opportunity. We could do like a taxonomy of endowment stories, right? Like yeah. you have you have this mm-hmm. kind of story where yeah. someone leaves money and it's used for purposes, uh, I would imagine, otherwise than what they were attended. But then we also have your sort of um, incredibly wealthy guy gives incredibly large amount of money to school that does not needed in any way shape or form right. so yeah these endowment stories yeah, there's like the john paulson gives money to harvard story right, right? And, and that was backlash on that right. and malcolm gladwell was kind of talking smack about it there's the, there's that kind of crazy there's also the uh lawsuit because 90 years ago someone left yes. money and and their great-grandchildren are noticing that it's that the original uh uh purpose has long since been abrogated and like over it's all it's a lot of money now right because of mm-hmm. compound interest and mm-hmm. so there are hundreds of millions of dollars at stake and i mean princeton went through this with the woodrow wilson school right, right? right like right. uh uh where they well, said it's not for public purposes anymore mm-hmm. i just think i thought it was interesting it, it seems like a change to me because it it felt like maybe if that story had run if that had been 10 years ago version of that story mm-hmm. people would have been like yeah sure i guess a football team mm-hmm. why yeah. not and yeah. they had to like make up some excuse that literally while he, he was dying in the nursing home he he they said well he like was really into football in the last 6 months <laughs> of his life and so they would wheel him in front of the tv and he you know memorized the names of the players and so that's yeah, this, you know i mean like they had thing. to yeah. they had somehow like had some kind of crazy justification for it um yeah, so it was sort of, it was the fact that it ta- caught them off guard and that the reporters who wrote the story 
didn't think to sort of say, yeah. really? A football yeah. uh, scoreboard? Yeah. And I think we could also we could also tie this story to the kind of absurd directions that college football arms race spending has gone. Yeah, because there was a story out of, it was Iowa, right, that hired a strength coach and paid the guy multiple millions of dollars, like what you would, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they're running out of ways to spend money in college really? football. And then you, you end up seeing effects like this with the scoreboard race. Does that even, I mean, there are free weights and steroids, man. Like what else is I, that? You know, you that's my understanding. Was our last one our college sports one, or was that two no, months ago? No, so, that was one that was somewhere February. College I think, football season February is starting again. No, Ohio, it hasn't. I'm in denial. Doesn't Ohio exist. State is undefeated. Um, Northwestern lost to an FCS team. Things are in the great. first game of the season, right? They're not second, even a second, second game, game of the season. season. Yeah, I think I saw something like that. I it's thought it's been about not you. great. Um, but isn't a former Northwestern quarterback is now the quarterback of the Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos, right? Yes, a fun fact so about this year him, is, in fact, is. Northwestern is playing zero football games. We are all only watching Denver Broncos football okay. games. Whatever you've heard about a Northwestern football game. Is he season, doing okay? Is, is he stepping um, into Peyton As far Manning's as I can tell, shoes? his first game was like, <laughs> meh. Yeah. He appears to be, do- like, to be honest, and I've said this in my rants about this year, but like... The fact that we... This guy was not a good quarterback. He was not a good quarterback at Northwestern. He was not even, like, the best Northwestern quarterback I've ever seen. He was not the most fun to watch play. He was not, like, the best at anything that he did. He was not ever... If you had told me, like, four years ago, oh, and, like, Trevor Simeon's going to be a starter for the Super Bowl winning <laughs> NFL team, I would be like, no, what's wrong with you? Um... So it's really not great for our program that we apparently had a guy who could like play competently. He is not a superstar, he just, like, but he was playing very competently in the kill NFL. Kill it on the wonderlook exam or like, something. And apparently, he what, went to a good college. Or? So, no, like um, Roger Sherman, who writes for SB Nation and who I edited when he was a freshman reporter in college, writing about baseball, and is now like a hilarious sports writer that did not come out mm. at all in his freshman baseball coverage. <laughs> so okay. I feel that I failed as an editor, but wrote a, a good piece on this at SB Nation that was apparently like. They looked at the very technical fundamentals of how you do things, and they like liked the way his feet moved when okay. he threw, and like stuff like that that like NFL scouts look for. That like I so as a is, casual college football watcher, yeah, exactly. We like the fundamentals, and yeah. we thought we could Can't train him up basically. And it was like, okay, great. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we missed that. For, it just seems for five like it was years. like, well, our formula was a like really, really mediocre quarterback <laughs> and a dominant defense, and, and we're just gonna so let's not mess it up by getting a good quarterback. I mean, that's what would happen then. I cannot tell you how like shocked and pleased. I am that we've produced yeah. a mediocre NFL quarterback. Like yeah. that is a high water mark in the past twenty five years of Northwestern football. So you know the thing about college football is I don't care really. Mm-hmm. I don't care at all. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it's it, which is too bad in a way because you know my undergrad college there was no football team and mm-hmm. then when I went to grad school at Ohio State. So I just pay attention to Ohio State and Ohio State never loses. So I and, you miss all of you know, the drama so, and pathos. So I don't. I have no investment in. It. I paid no dues. Mm-hmm. You know because mm-hmm. I have no history of like agony or anything like that. I don't you know, wasting in my Saturday afternoons in a vain hope. I just am like, I read the sports page on Sunday morning and I'm like, oh yeah, Ohio State won again. They never lose. Um, but the great thing about it, but it's all worth it because you get to make fun of people from the University of Michigan. And that yeah. is so great. Yeah. That is that is the gift that keeps on giving. There are so many University of Michigan people here in Washington. They care so much. They think that Jim Harbaugh is awesome. Jim Harbaugh is an insane person. <laughs> Um, and he is just not a stone cold killer like Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer is the perfect college football coach. I remember, I remember when uh, they hired him, and uh, I was reading like uh, some email or something from John Chait, who's like mm-hmm. the world's biggest University of Michigan homer, and he was so sad. He was just like, "No, this is terrible. There's no way to. There's no way around this. He's the he's the worst slash best possible person for Ohio State to hire. They're going to win so many football games now, and it all turned out right." 
Yeah, and you know, so I, I am also not a college football fan, but I feel like you went to Georgetown. I did, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I just pa- learned Patriot that League Georgetown program. has a football yeah. team, which is yeah. actually like not a thing. I'm saying jokingly. I is there a football team? Know. Right. So, so they're a Patriot League team. They have they have, there's a stadium on campus. Yeah. Um, they're used to. Uh, when I was there, it was uh, mm-hmm. up sort of uh, on the top of campus on some astroturf. Now it's down in the middle of campus on some astroturf. Um, uh, I should say the program is run by incredibly nice people. If I had a child to play football, mm-hmm. I would want them to play for the Georgetown coaches. Uh, Rob Scarlett is a, a great guy, but yes, a very different level of football than what we're talking about here. Um, but so as a non-college football fan, you know, my I feel like that justification uh, is further reinforced when you see like this Art Briles apology tour that's going on just really like turns your stomach about the whole thing. So that's the stuff that I think is yeah. very hard to reconcile this time of year. No, I mean, I, yeah. I'm more honest about this every year, I think, but like I... I there is no moral justification for being a college football fan. Like yeah. I, there probably also isn't moral justification for eating meat. And there just like, there are things <laughs> right. in my life yeah. where like no, I, I just that. Yep. I have put boxes around some things because you I I am not a superhuman. If All it right. did if it didn't make University of Michigan people sad, I would not care. <laughs> it's the only yeah. thing that keeps mm-hmm. me even mildly interested. I mean, it, it helps that like I believe in Northwestern's program. I believe in our coach. Yeah. I think that like as programs go, we are not terrible. I am mm-hmm. proud that the unionization drive, whether or not it would have been a good thing for higher ed in the long term, like the the instincts behind it were good and I am pleased that they started at Northwestern like you know but no it's it's indefensible and like I'm you yeah. know you can't be a higher ed reporter and not know that um lastly was that, was that enough bickering we didn't really was good. no it was good yeah, I, I really yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no I, okay. I feel like that was worth the maybe maybe yeah. next month like football will have actually started right. um we won this week so I think we've had one week of the <laughs> okay. season and I look forward to discussing right. a, a I more Oklahoma on the road blew them out even though every player went to the NFL last year like literally every player from the Ohio State they're the most inexperienced college football team in the, in any power conference, and yet they're still number three. I'm just glad neither of you yeah. are Notre Dame fans because I don't think oh, I can handle yeah, this. I live with so, I live yeah, with two yeah, Notre Dame fans. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, finally, the Emmys were last night. Um, again, this is a place where we have no diversity on it, at all. We have lots of no diversity on the podcast that we'll probably need to work on in a long-term <laughs> basis. There's really no TV diversity. The the Americans were snubbed last night. I guess it was great that it was nominated, but nope. except for Margaret Martindale, which doesn't count. It does because, not count. That because she appears great, like, for she five in, minutes every year, year. Yeah. and they just give it to her. I just yeah. think because everyone thought she was so good and justified, that's, they're like, give it. Margot yep. Martindale all the Emmys, which I'm fine with. I think that's right. She's awesome. I mean, I love her. I love her character. I wish she were in more, but it but is like, like, absurd to, to, to say that yeah, she's I mean, like the best right. part of the season. No, also, no, was that the most recent season or was it the one before? I should know this, but I don't it's know It's the, the most recent work. one, I think, because of the way it works. Correct. Yeah. Um, Somebody tried I to mean, actually me on Twitter that actually the Americans wasn't as good this year as in previous seasons. That's and I was like, no, that's, the most wrong, that's the most wrong thing anyone has ever tweeted at me in the history of Twitter. Right. Yeah. This, but, you know, the snubs last night were of multiple variety, which is, you know, the, the best drama series one, you're up against the juggernaut right. of Game of Thrones. But some of the other ones... Yes, I was rooting for the actors and the actresses from Americans, but you know, I mean, it, it's also hard to argue in some of those winners. No, that's right. So it's yeah. not like it went to Leah Schreiber yeah. for right. Ray Donovan exactly. or some nonsense like that. So uh, I watched the first five episodes of Mr. Robot. I have to say, I didn't finish it, but it seemed good. You it know? is quite good. Yeah, it's one that I've not gotten to. I'm finally yeah. watching the first season of True Detective. Um, oh, yeah. So that's, awesome. this is where I am you in my stop post- after the first season. That's what I've been told. Yeah. Well, you know, good, the second bit, season is a good it. hate watch, though. It's yeah. so bad. It's yeah. actually kind of fun to watch. It's very weird to watch, and yeah. I was like this was Game of Thrones because I was like right. four years late to Game of Thrones. Uh, it's very interesting to watch shows that have gotten like that much right. critical adoration. I I like True Detective. I kind of don't get it. Like I I, I don't quite it see was a what moment, everyone you know, saw. It was kind of a cultural moment. 
I'm enjoying yeah. it. We're not going to stop watching to it. But watching it's like, it. yeah, have, I, I think mean, I missed it. I the fourth out. episode, though, with the yeah. whole thing and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have yeah. two, three to go, I okay. think. So, yeah. like, it's good. Like, I don't know. I also, I've watched Hansali. a lot of procedurals, and I think there's also a point where right. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, like, I can actually see that. Like, you you're, think you're, you think you're yeah. using the cliches, but you're actually just you're, 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 you're a suits fan, Libby. I think this is my five years late cultural hot take. So, I think the biggest surprise for me last night was. Tatiana Maslany winning for Orphan Black like two years after it left the cultural conversation. Yeah. Right? I mean, that show was. I watched the first couple of seasons and yeah. loved it, and then I sort of forgot that it was on and stopped watching. But I, I watched the first season. Night. I liked it a lot. My wife has stayed with it. I dropped out because I was because it clearly was one of those. Oh, they're just making it up as they go along. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a, this is a a long time uh, like marital rift going all the way back to the X Files, where we were big on the X Files like back in the nineties. We would watch on Friday nights and everything. And at some point, I was just like. They don't know what they're doing. They, there's no <laughs> right. story here. Right. They just make every... Because it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. And she was like, shut up, you're ruining it for me. And so I, I could see The Orphan Black was one of those. But yeah. totally deserved. She's totally. great. Yeah, I she's mean, fantastic. you watch that show yeah. and you really don't think it's the same person. Yeah. Just for the suburban housewife character alone. Yeah. She should get... you know. This. So I, I couldn't complain about that. I mean... No, that was great. But, yeah. but again, but those guys are so good. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean when it goes no, off the air, who's so to great. say it won't be on TV like two years from now, but when it goes off the air and what I think is 2019, 18 right. the last season I feel like the January or the the 20 the whatever year Emmys that is they'll get the valedictory yeah, one they'll, they'll yeah. suddenly yeah. get like and I've been really like oh what is the show why were we watching it and I would be like <laughs> right. I've been telling well, you people for literally it's not getting cancelled though right like it's gonna it's, stay no they get they, but they, get they, have, they have two it's not getting cancelled They but they have a sunset yeah. date for but it, it should, I think I mean, it's right. Right. that, that is how television there's no such thing as a great nine series season of anything no I actually I was surprised they got two more I really think there may be I'm surprised there's two they think there's two seasons you know the story but that makes sense there was a great piece last week Alan Sevenwall wrote yeah. about why FX is the best network on TV mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he explained how John Langroff uses this metric where they say is it critically adored is it watched and do we like it and mm-hmm. if they check two of those boxes <laughs> yeah. the show stays on the air yeah. and I think the Americans whether it's being watched or not definitely checks those other two boxes so no, I think I mean I remember David Simon back when he was renewing The Wire and again The Wire never now, won. now regarded is like yeah. the greatest TV show ever one never won and two it was never clear if it was going to be mm-hmm. renewed right. it was a big drama yeah. every year are they even going to make it again and I remember when they renewed it for season four or season five he's like yeah pretty much they were you know we came in we made their pitch and they were like yeah we want to see that and that was it like the, the people mm-hmm. they wanted to see it so mm-hmm. they they renewed it and um did either I of you watch keep... the night of yeah i, I liked it a lot it. Okay. yeah i liked it a lot like thought it was really good yeah yeah Cool. Very, yes, very you should, solid. You should proceed. I caught up with it. I caught up with it like uh, four episodes in and then watched the last four as they happened. Yeah, and, I think uh, we watched five in one yeah. day, maybe. It was oh, yeah. a marathon. Yeah, yeah, no, it I was a marathon of yeah. catching up. Yeah. Um, the first episode especially is fabulous. Yeah, no, the first episode I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, anything Richard Price writes, I'm all in on. He's fabulous. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, the guy who played the lead actor was really good. Um, yeah. Well, while we're on the topic, we're yeah. in DC. Are, are we are we going to watch Jack Bauer, HUD secretary? Is that something that's on our to do list over so, the next couple of weeks? This has been like I love this concept because I've been saying for years, and then everyone's like Battlestar Galactica did it. And I'm like, yes, I know I need to watch that show, and so I've had that. Don't at me. I've had that Twitter conversation. Before, but like, <laughs> well, you haven't watched Galactica? No, I will eventually. It's so good. It's awesome. There's it's, man, there's it's a good. lot of pop culture out there. Oh, it's, it's, and she's it's a secretary of education. I know. So yeah. like, I I love the concept, there's and I'm intrigued by that show fact. I'm not like not intrigued by the show itself, but like, I'm glad someone's making it. I but I, 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 I'm very intrigued people. by the premise that like Jack Bauer is supposed to be a policy wonk and yeah, then he he's becomes like the president. Anti- I never yeah, once I, watched yeah. an episode of okay. Twenty Four. Okay. Never. I have no. I know of it, but I never okay. watched a minute of it. So I don't know anything about that. Yeah. So probably not. Be fun. A, a totally unpre- uh, unprepared person becomes president seems like less 
dramatically exciting <laughs> this year than in the past, yeah. I would say. But like, yeah. you know, yeah. mm-hmm. who's to say? Right. Yeah, Veep 1, Veep is awesome. That's yeah. right. I was, documentary. I was right. like, Docu- yeah, I was, documentary I was skeptical when Armando Iannucci left. I'm like, they can't keep it going, but they kind of, they yeah. sort of, I think, turned up the dial to 11 on the profanity and the... And all the craziness. Yes, but also the idea of making Jonah run for Congress was yeah. just brilliant on a yeah. level that I didn't see coming. And mm-hmm. I probably laughed harder at stuff coming out of that storyline. When he cut that political ad where he was swinging the axe and he couldn't chop mm-hmm. the wood, I just like on the floor. Yeah. I hope it's, I hope people watch it and I hope they decide that that's what DC is like. <laughs> you know, I feel like that will make the world a better place. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, thank you to our listeners. Um, thank, as always, to John, Amanda, and our great production staff here at New America. Um, tweet at us if you like. Give us suggestions. I just want one of the reasons that Jesse got on as the, our first guest mm-hmm. guest host, in part because of his, as you've just heard, detailed knowledge of higher education policy, but also he and Jin, and Jin, and Jin he yeah. tweeted pictures of cocktails this at is us true. This is and true. promised to bring them, and that totally worked. So for those of you out there, <laughs> we are very susceptible to bribery. Please yes. bribe us. Yeah, we 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 make no bones well, about you, it. You told me I could hang around as a permanent bartender on the show. Right? It, absolutely. That, right? okay. Yeah, we may bring more guests in here, and then you can you'll be like the. Paul Schaefer of uh, that with drinks instead of instead of music. Um, thanks to everybody, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org. <laughs>